I heard a story about an old man who was a, a retired farmer and he got very bored so he decided to set up his own medical clinic and he put a sign outside that said get any treatment for £500 and if it doesn't work you get £1,000 back. Well, a local GP, Dr. Young, was positive that this old guy, let's call him Dr. Farmer, didn't have a clue about medicine, so he thought this would be a great opportunity for him to get £1,000. He went to the old farmer's clinic, and this is what happened. Dr. Young said, Dr. Farmer, I have lost all taste in my mouth. Can you help me? Dr. Farmer said, Nurse, please bring medicine from box 22 and put three drops in Dr. Young's mouth. She does it, and Dr. Young screams, Ah, that's petrol! Dr. Farmer says, Congratulations, you've got your taste back. That will be £500. Well, Dr. Young is annoyed, and he goes back after a couple of days because he's trying to find out how he can recover his money. And uh, he says to Dr. Farmer, I've lost my memory. I can't remember anything. Dr. Farmer says, Nurse, please bring medicine from box 22 and put three drops in the patient's mouth. Dr. Young shouts, Oh, no, you don't. That's petrol in box 22. Dr. Farmer says, Congratulations, you've got your memory back. That will be £500. Dr. Young, having lost £1,000, leaves furious, comes back after several more days. He says to Dr. Farmer, my eyesight has become so bad I'm almost blind. Dr. Farmer says, well, I don't have any medicine, but here's your £1,000 back. Dr. Young says, but that's only £500. Dr. Farmer says, congratulations, you've got your vision back. That will be £500. Not everything we call a miracle or a healing is a miracle or a healing. And because of that, sometimes we shy away and yet we have been singing it this morning that our God is a miracle working God. Do we still believe that as a church? I know I do that our God is a miracle working God and that's what we're going to see this morning as we continue in the book of Acts. We have been looking at Acts chapters 1 and 2 over the last few weeks and we saw that before Jesus ascended to heaven he's been crucified, he's been raised from the dead and before he ascends he says I am going to send you power, once I go there I'm going to send you power, power from heaven and the word he uses is dunamis from which we get the word dynamite, I am going to send you explosive earth shattering power that will turn the world upside down and Jesus goes back to heaven and the disciples are praying and we saw this last week that on the day of Pentecost which actually is the day if only I had planned this better but on the day of Pentecost the Holy Spirit came and, and the fire was poured out, that fire that, that that bishop talked about yesterday, fire was poured out on the church and they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. They were transformed. They got the power that had been promised because Jesus never makes a promise that he doesn't keep. They got the power that had been promised and they didn't keep it to themselves. It wasn't you, me and the other three. It wasn't let's just stay behind closed doors and roll about and enjoy these supernatural encounters with the Holy Spirit it was let's get out there and they get out and Peter preaches this message and the message basically has two points one is that Jesus Christ died and two the Bible backs it up Jesus died he rose again and the Bible backs it up that was the gospel message and 3,000 people were added to the church we have the birth of the church and we began to look last week at what that early church looks like and so now we are in Acts chapter 3 Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. 
He is in supreme authority, matchless majesty, perfect power, and absolute sovereignty. And the church is ready to go out and proclaim that. So last, uh, the last few weeks they've preached and the words have worked. The gospel message has worked. But we haven't seen if they can do the works. Jesus said in John 14, you will do even greater works than I have done. And I read that and I go, really, Jesus? Like, you did some pretty good stuff. Is that really true? And we begin to see this morning that Jesus again keeps his word. Let's look at Acts chapter 3, verse 1, an ordinary day. One day, just an ordinary day, Peter and John, (laughs) I like Peter and John. Peter and John were two of the inner circle of the disciples, Peter, James and John, were the three who got to see the transfiguration. They were the three who Jesus took with him into Gethsemane. Peter and John were a little bit competitive. Peter was impulsive. He, he, he always said and did the wrong thing. And John was maybe a little bit arrogant. He, uh, you've heard me say he called himself the disciple Jesus loved. He's the only one who says that. In John 20, it says Peter and John, which John wrote, Peter and John were racing to the tomb and John got there first. Um, so there's a little bit of, you know, if you're a competitive male or a competitive female, these two were a little bit competitive, but they're still friends. And uh, they're going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. So the miracle we're about to see starts off just one day. It just says one day. First two words, one day. It's just an ordinary day. Nothing significant about it. And Peter and John are going to pray in the temple. They do this probably most days. Three in the afternoon. It's the hour of prayer. It's their routine. It's, their, it's just what they do. They, they worship with the believers on a Sunday in the, in the Christian church. And then during the week they maybe go to the synagogue or the temple where they go and pray. Because they just want to be where the presence of God is. But their routine is about to be interrupted. There's a divine diversion in store god has google synced his calendar with theirs and with someone they don't even know yet i don't like interruptions i i like routine i i like to make plans and i like them to happen as i plan i'm a planner when we go on holidays becky makes fun of me i'm the planner i'm the one who books the holidays but i don't just book the holidays i have what we call the master booklet yeah of, of literally, I print out every page from the car park to the, the transport from the car park to the airport to the tickets to the plane to the, the transport from the airport to the hotel to the hotel. It's all stapled together in order. I like, I'm a planner. I like everything to go exactly as I plan. I don't like interruptions. Maybe you're the same as me. But what I have discovered is this, that very often God's interruptions are his interventions. That, that God doesn't care about whether I like to be interrupted or not. You know, we're trying to teach our little boy at the minute not to interrupt us. Yeah, those of you who, because they think that what they have to say is the most important thing in the universe. You could be talking about anything and they just interrupt and we say, Elijah, you can't interrupt. And so he's been taught in school, you put up your hand. 
And so now he, he will be talking, he'll put up his hand and he'll just start talking. And we'll be like, no, you don't just put up your hand and interrupt. You have to wait when you put up your hand. He thinks putting up your hand just means you can start talking over anybody. You know, and God sometimes interrupts us. He interrupts our plans. He interrupts our, our, our routines. He interrupts our ordinary days. But his interruptions are invitations for his interventions. His interruptions are often invitations for his interventions. And they're in the ordinary days. Just one day, it said at the start. It's in the ordinary days of life that God interrupts us. And I wonder how open we are to those interruptions in our routines. Tomorrow in work, are you open to an interruption in your routine? As you chat with your neighbor this afternoon, maybe if you're in your garden, are you open to an interruption where they're telling you about something that's going on in your, their family, maybe some sickness, some problem in a marriage? Are you open to that interruption where God whispers, why don't you pray for them? Are you open to that interruption in the gym when you're uh, talking to somebody and they talk about something and, and God whispers, why don't you just share with them that I love them? You see, most of us think that when God interrupts, it's going to be dramatic. There's going to be lightning bolts in the sky. There's going to be a voice from heaven saying, share the gospel. That is not how it happens. It is ordinary. But most of us, and I think something in the church, we love the dramatic. We love the exciting. We love something uh, otherworldly. You know, most of us will not get the opportunity like Bishop Michael Curry to preach to millions and that is part of the problem because we look at that and we think, well, I can never do that so I can't be used by God. We think for God to work, it has to be dramatic, exciting and a big moment. But what I've discovered is that most of life happens in the ordinary. Most of life is routine. Most of life, folks, is actually pretty boring like, let's be honest. The most of our days are not full of Instagram moments or Facebook moments. They're ordinary. They're every day. They're routine. We post things on Instagram and Facebook because they're the highlights. They're the 30-second highlights of 24 hours of our day. And sometimes it's just that you had a decent chicken curry for dinner. Like, like that's the most exciting thing that happened. But, but most of life is not highlights. It's ordinary. It's routine. You know what one of the most overused words is? Awesome. Everything's awesome these days. You know, awesome. You know, everything from church service to chocolate cake was awesome. The new Netflix show's awesome. Suits is awesome, by the way. We've just got into it recently. We, we started watching Suits a few weeks ago. And halfway through it, Becky goes, is that Meghan Markle? We didn't even know she was in it. And, uh, but it's awesome. It's awesome. This new Netflix show is awesome. This new worship song is awesome. This new, the new shop that's opened is awesome. Look at my new outfit. It's awesome. Everything's awesome. Awesome. If everything's awesome, nothing's awesome. Do you understand that? If we say God is awesome and Netflix is awesome, what you know, how do we we live in a world which is all about the superfluous, the great, the amazing, and we overuse words. I know churches that every Sunday they put on Instagram and Facebook, we killed it today. It was the best Sunday ever. We knocked it out of the park. Can you really do that every Sunday? Because what do you do the following Sunday? If that Sunday was the best Sunday ever, next Sunday has to be even better. 
What do you do with that? You know what? Sometimes it's just a Sunday. Do you know that? I had a friend recently, he's a worship pastor, and he was like, I want every Sunday to be this amazing encounter. And I said, that's great, but sometimes it's just a Sunday. Sometimes you just show up, and you go home again, and you sing good songs, and you hear a passionate preacher who shouts too loud and talks too long, and you have good buns and you go home and that's it and then some Sundays God breaks in it's just an ordinary Sunday if you will do the ordinary God will it's an invitation for God to do the extraordinary but most of us think well I'm not going to do that that's too ordinary that's too simple that's too basic that's not extraordinary enough but if you will be faithful in the ordinary week after week if you will be faithful in praying at home day after day you know what most of my quiet times at home most mornings at home I try to spend an hour on my knees in my study I have a recliner I kneel before it I try to and most weeks I get up, most days I get up and I, I haven't had a, a radical encounter with Jesus. I'd love to tell you I went into the third heaven and there's a, things I can't express. I know a man who, you know, and I don't know if I was in the body or out of the body. I'd love to tell you that most of the time that doesn't happen. But now and again, I, I sense his presence. Now and again, I hear his voice. Now and again, he speaks to me. But you know what it is? It's just showing up day after day after day, after day, in the ordinary, in the, in, the, in the mundane. And sometimes in the mundane, God does the miraculous. Sometimes in the ordinary, God does the extraordinary. But if we're only looking for the miraculous and the extraordinary, we will miss it. God meets us in the ordinary moments of our lives because most of life happens in the monotonous in the routine in the everyday Peter and John are going to the prayer meeting that day they do it most days they had no idea that anything exciting interesting or extraordinary was going to happen but God breaks in because the miracle is often in the mundane look what happens next verse 2 Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful. Where he was put every day to beg from those who were going into the temple courts. They don't even get inside when they encounter this man who is being carried to his usual spot. Where he sits every day begging. And the first thing I want you to say is this happens outside the church. It doesn't happen in the church. They didn't go into the temple and have a prayer meeting, a miraculous healing service, get on a white suit, you know, and, 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 and get people up on stage and, and hit them in the head. They're walking along the road. This guy's there. Every day he's there. It was outside the church building. And most of what God wants to do is not in this building. It is out there in the community it is in your factory it is in your school it is in your office it is in your community it is in your workplace it is in your friendships it is in your sports club it is wherever you go God wants to work out there much more than he wants to work in here I have discovered that 
so much in the last few years that God is just waiting for us to show up and if we will show up he will show up but most of us are are so busy thinking that God is confined to the four walls of the church that we never realize that he is at work out there and so we're told this man has been lame he's been crippled from birth he's never walked his entire life he's we're told later on he's over 40 years old I'm 40 Two forty-three this year. I can see the shock and awe in the room. Um, I can just—I mean, your faces aren't showing it, but I can sense it in the spirit. Um, so he's probably—if it says he's over forty, he's probably around my age. And he's never walked his entire life. From the day he was born, he hasn't walked. He's completely dependent on others. Every day, friends or family come and they pick him up. Literally, they carry him. They set him in his spot outside the temple, which is a good spot to sit. If you're going to beg, beg outside a church. People feel guilty walking past you. And, and that, he knows that. People know, I remember when we were in Shankle, we used to have people begging every Sunday at the gate of Shankle Parish Church because they know that you know, for you to walk past them, you feel guilty. And, 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 and you're afraid of what other people will think. And, so, and, and these guys had it down to a T, so they sit at the gate of the temple, the temple gate. And he's just hoping that people will pity him enough to give him some spare change. He just wants to make it through another day. At the end of the day, his friends or family return. They'll pick him up. They'll bring him home. He'll go to bed. He'll get up the next day. They'll carry him down and do the same thing. Day after day, pick him up, bring him home. That's his routine. That's his lot in life. And he's been doing it for years. Everybody knows him. Everybody recognizes him. Day after day, he lives out this monotonous existence. He lives in survival mode. Day after day, it's just, I just need enough to get by one more day. It's my routine. And his whole life is, is built around his disability. He can't imagine life. If you've been born with something, you know, if you, if you get ill when you're 30, 40, you can imagine when life was different. If you've been born like this, you can't imagine anything ever being different. This is just his lot in life. He never imagines things can be any different it's not his fault he was born like this it's just the way it's always been and it's never going to change and maybe this morning you're here and and you're not paralyzed physically but you're paralyzed in other ways maybe you're paralyzed by fear maybe you've just known fear for so long i know fear is something that's very prevalent in people's lives fear of the future fear of being rejected, fear of. See, I think a lot of the time we can't even define that fear. We just have fear, anxiety. You see, hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago, we had real fears. We could be attacked. We could. We're now our lives are so sheltered and comfortable that we 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 just develop irrational fears. We we live with fear of. Not being recognized, not being not, not, not achieving what we set out in life. We live with insecurity, addiction. Maybe you're paralyzed by addiction this morning. Maybe you're paralyzed by stress. This world is a stressful place. I've spoken to two people, at least if not three this morning, who are just stressed with work, stressed with busyness. Anxiety. Maybe you're stuck in a place of pain. 
maybe from the past, maybe a broken relationship. I sense this morning that there's people who are stuck in, there's, there, I don't know, but I, there's people here, I believe, who are divorced, who are stuck in that, that divorce and, and, and the pain of that divorce and the hurt of that divorce and it ripped the heart out of you. And you're stuck in that place and hurt and loss and anger and grief. Maybe you're stuck in a place of depression, lack of money, drowning in debt, maybe a physical illness. It could be anything, but you're stuck in this rotten every day. Just It feels like you're just trying to get through. I just need to get through. If I can just get through one more day. If I can just, just get through and I'll go to bed tonight and then I'll get up tomorrow and be the same. And You're stuck in this survival mode. And what used to be nasty is now normal. I've said it before, but the only difference between a rotten to grave is the size of the hole. The only difference between a rut and a grave is the size of the hole. And sometimes you stay in a rut so long that it almost becomes a grave. Maybe no one knows what you're dealing with because we become really good at hiding it, especially in church. On the outside, we look like we've got it all together. We look like we're, we're, we're holy, we're spiritual, we're successful. We put on a brave face. Do you notice in the passage where the lame man sits every day? They carried him to the temple gate called beautiful. One preacher I heard said this, he was living an ugly life in a beautiful place. His surroundings didn't match his circumstances. He's in a place that contradicts his condition. And maybe you seem to have it all together. Maybe to other people, they envy you. Maybe they think you're successful. Maybe they think you're happy. Maybe they think that you've got a great job and a great life and a great wife and a great kids and, and you just seem like the perfect family. And deep down, you know that you're empty. Maybe you know that you're dysfunctional. Maybe you know that your family's fallen apart. Maybe you know deep down you're crippled by addiction or compulsions that you can't control. Maybe you're stuck and you're just surviving. Maybe you feel helpless and hopeless and vulnerable and weak. And that's the place that God wants to meet you this morning. Look at verse 3. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. This guy's been sitting there so long that he's probably invisible. People see him every day. You know that person you walk past every day? He sits there every day and people just don't even notice him anymore. They just keep on walking by. And Peter and John are walking by and they're just two sets of feet. Two more people who will probably just keep walking. Two more people who, who won't even notice him. There's nothing remarkable or different about Peter and John. They're disciples of Christ. They've been baptized in the Spirit, but they don't walk about with a ready bright glow. They don't have some supernatural awe, aura about them. They're just two ordinary men and a bunch of men going to a place to pray. The guide doesn't even look up. He just asks them... A, as he asks everybody else, have you any spare change? Could you spare a few coins? Could, could, have you, any, have you any, any coins? Could, could you help me out? He relies on, relies on the, the kindness and sympathy of others just to make it through another day. And I love this next verse. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. Look at us. They don't ignore him. 
Most people are walking past him. You know when you see those people begging and you either give or you pretend you don't see, or you go, hiya, and walk on. They give him their full attention. In a world that ignores the, the lowly and the least and the last and the lost, they, they give him their full attention. And I believe in that moment the Holy Spirit was stirring something. I believe the Holy Spirit was reminding them. I believe the Holy Spirit was, was bringing back memories of what Jesus would do when he encountered people like this. WWJD. They didn't even have the bracelet, but they were thinking it. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus have done a month ago, a year ago, when he encountered this guy? And read what Peter says. Look at us. Look at us. Give us your attention. Focus. I know that, 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 that we're just two ordinary people walking past. Look at us. Often we say that to Elijah when he pretends he's listening, but he's not. You know, look at us. I know you, you're pretending you're listening, but look at us. Give us your, look us in the eye. Give us your attention. And that used to work with Becky until Elijah started doing this crazy eye thing where he would wobble his eyes and Becky couldn't keep a straight face. And and so it doesn't work with her anymore. But for the responsible parent, it still works. The sensible parent, he can't break me. And so look at me. And and, what what they're saying is, I want your full attention. In the eye, look me in the eye. That's what Peter and John are doing here. But I think there's something else going on. Because I want you to imagine this man. I want you to imagine how he feels about himself. His self-image. He hasn't worked his whole life. He's completely dependent and reliant on others for everything. Day after day, he sits in a spot and watches men his age walk past him. Men who have jobs, men who have lives, men who have made it, men who in his mind are better than him. And all he is hoping for is a handout. All he is reliant on is their sympathy. It's a generalization, I know, but most women get their identity through relationships and most men get our identity through what we do. I always say to men, if your job's not going well, your life's probably not going well. And wives will will be able to say amen to that because if you have a husband and his work is not going well, everything else in his life can be good. But because we derive so much identity through what we do, if our job's not going well, we feel useless. We feel insecure. We feel depressed. We feel, And this man, his self-esteem is probably at rock bottom. He's reduced to sympathy and pity and mercy. And so if you were him, I want you to imagine how you would be sitting. I want you to imagine what you would look like. Would you be sitting with your head held high? Or would you be sitting like this? I think his head would be down. And not only that, not only was there the the shame of of being a beggar, but this was a culture where a lot of people attributed sickness to sin. That if, particularly if you were born with a, you remember the the guy who was born blind and the disciples came, or the Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, who sinned, him or his parents? They assumed that if there was sickness, there was sin. There was a stigma attached to it. And so this is a culture where not only does he, 
is he ashamed because he can't work and he's begging on the street? But there's also the sense of, well, he must have done something wrong and God doesn't really like him. God's not happy with him. And so there's not only the social stigma, there's the religious stigma attached to it. So I think he's sitting with his head down. He's sitting with his head down. He doesn't want to make eye contact. And Peter says, look at us. Look at us. Look at us. And he, in other words, son, lift up your head. Lift up your eyes. Look at us. You're not a nobody. God is about to do something good. Lift your head. You're not a waste of space. Lift your head. You're not useless. Lift your head. God is not angry at you. Lift your head. You have no idea what God wants to do. Lift your head. Lift your head. Lift your head. Psalm 3 3 says this You are a shield about me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. And God would say that to some of you this morning. Lift your head. I know that you've got shame in your life. Lift your head. I know that life hasn't turned out the way you hoped it would be, but lift your head. I know that you feel like you're a waste of space, but lift your head. I know that somebody told you that you were unlovable, but lift your head. I know that you're downcast and you're depressed, but I want you to lift your head because I want to do something in your life. I want to do something through your life. I have so much more for you than living at rock bottom, than being stuck in a rut. I have so much more, but lift your head. I know you feel like no one notices you, but I have noticed you. Lift your head. But his expectations are low. Look at verse 5. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. He looks at them. Attentively, he expects it says to get something from them. What did he expect to get from them? A few coins, some spare change, some loose change. That's the best that he expected. That was as high as his expectation could go. He couldn't expect any more than somebody would put their hand in and give him the least that they could probably give. His expectation was here, but God was about to meet him here. And then Peter said this, silver and gold I do not have. Stop there. Silver and gold I do not have. Most of us would stop there. Because most of us are much more conscious of what we do not have than what we do have. Most of us are much more aware of our deficiency and our defectiveness than the blessings, the gifts, the talents the authority God has given us. You know, most of us, that could be our fridge magnet when it comes to the middle of the month. Silver and gold I do not have. You know, that that we're very much aware of our lack of our brokenness than what we do have. Peter says, I might not have money, but I know what I do have. And I think that God just might be able to take it and use it. You know, we... We have a God who starts with what we do have, not with what we don't have. He always asks, what do you have? He's got a crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children around him and they're trying to figure out, and he says, what do we have? Well, two little fish and five loaves of bread. It's not much, but when we take what 
we have and give it to him, he multiplies it. You see, when we hold on to what we have, that's all we have. But when we give it to him, he's able to do something incredible with it. What have you got? He turns to Moses and he says, what's that in your hand? And Moses looks at it and goes, it's just a staff. It's just a shepherd's staff. It's just a stick. And God says, pass it over to me. Drop it into my hands. And when this ordinary stick is dropped into to, to, to God's hand, it becomes a supernatural rod which, which parts the Red Sea, which brings water from the rocks, which when held up wins a battle. What have you got in your hand? He comes to a prophet comes to a little woman who whose sons are about to be sold off because she's so poor and he says what have you got she says nothing except a little jar of oil he says pour it out and as she pours it out God is able to multiply it God never asks what have you not got he asks what do you have and as we give our God a little he is able to turn it into a lot as we give God where we lack he is able to turn it into abundance we always start with with, with what we don't have. And God asks us simply to give what we do have. Because a lot of us have the mentality of if then. <laughs> if then. If I got this job, then I would be happy. If I got this husband, wife, then I would be happy. If I earned more then I would give to the church. If I was younger then I would serve. If I was older then I would. If then, if then, if then. We live in this fantasy world of if then. And God says actually what have you got now? Not then but now. If I was treated better, I'd be kinder to people. If I had their education, I would do something with my life, if then. And God says, stop waiting for the miracle you don't have yet and start working with what you do have. Because if you start with what you do have, God will take what you've got and multiply it. God takes a little bit and turns it into something more than I could ask or imagine. But what I do have, says Peter, what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Peter says, I'm not going to give you money, but I'm going to give you something so much better. He says, silver and gold I do not have, but I know what I do have. And what I do have is the presence of God. It's the power of God. It's the authority of Jesus. And that is so much better than the few coins that you are looking for. You see, we, we, we know this story. We've sang Peter and John went to pray. They met a little man in the way. We know the song. We know how it turned out. These guys do not know how this turned out. Do you ever think about that? We read these stories. We have no recollection anywhere in Scripture of Peter and John healing anybody before this significantly. Imagine they go... Get up and walk. And he goes. And falls down. Like awkward. Like we know he got up and did, you know, strictly come dancing around. the. We know that. But they didn't know that in that moment. This could have been hugely humiliating. This could have been like, get up and walk. I can't. My legs are numb. Get up and walk. No, I can't. How awkward. What I have discovered 
is that every time you pray for someone, every time you stretch yourself, every time you speak to somebody, it is awkward. It's uncomfortable. You don't know how it's going to turn out. You're not always going to have a Billy Graham moment. Sometimes you're going to share the gospel with someone and they're just going to walk away and think you're an idiot. Sometimes you're going to pray with someone and they're not going to be healed and nothing is going to change. But sometimes when you do the most awkward thing, God will do the awesome. And by that awesome, I mean truly awesome. Sometimes when you stretch, God stretches with you. Sometimes when you do the natural, God does the supernatural. If you will do the ordinary, God will do the extraordinary. And God shows up in the most awkward places and the most awkward moments in our lives because he is drawn to faith. You know that book, The Love Languages, that we read before we're married? God's love language is faith. God's love language is not pity, it is faith. And when God sees his people display faith, he steps in and he backs us up. As we stretch, he stretches. As we extend ourselves, the kingdom expands towards us. In the heaviest demands, we discover the deepest supply. So know what you have. Look at what Peter says again. I don't have silver or gold, but I know what I'm going to. I know what I have, and I'm going to give you what I've got. G.K. Chesterton tells a story, and I'm nearly done, of uh, when St. Francis of Assisi years ago went to visit the Vatican in Rome, and the Pope, referring to this passage, looked at all the splendor and the riches of Rome and the Vatican and the church at the time, and he turned to St. Francis and he said, well, the church can no longer say silver and gold I do not have. And St. Francis of Assisi said, but unfortunately we can't also say in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. uh, The world is not looking for a church with ornate buildings, thank the Lord. The world is not looking for fancy cathedrals. The world is looking for people who demonstrate the raw power of God. Peter knew who he was. He knew whose he was and he knew what he carried. He knew he was a connector of the current of the power of Christ. And that something, no, someone was dwelling within him. And that was the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so he says, I can't give you what you think you need, but I can give you what you need most. Because people out there, they think they need something, but what they really need is something different, don't they? They think they need more money. They think they need more sex. They think they need more relationships. They think they need more love from somebody. They think they need a bigger house. They think they need the latest model of car. They think they need, they think they need, but what they really need is Jesus in their life. And what we do is we don't give them what they think they need. We give them what they really need, and that is the power and the presence of Christ. And Peter says, I'm not going to give you silver or gold, but I'm going to give you something that money can't buy. You want some spare change? God wants to give you complete life change. You want a little money? God wants to give you complete mobility. Why? Because our God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or imagine. Unless you know what you have, you can't give it to someone else. Unless you know the authority that God has given you and the power that God has given you in Christ, how can you give it? You can't give what you don't know you have. I've told the story before about the guy who was found dead in Phoenix Park living like a pauper. A homeless guy found him when they did an autopsy and did all the research. They found he had 
tens of thousands of euros in his bank account. He had riches there, but he never accessed them. I think so many Christians are like that. God has given us power and authority, but we don't access them. And therefore, not only do we not benefit from them, but the world around us. If you were to say to me, can I have 20 pounds? And I go, I don't have 20 pounds. You go, okay. And you walk off penniless. If you say, have you 20 pounds? And I go, actually, I I do. I can give it to you because I know what I've got. Most of us need to realize what we have got in Christ Jesus. You're a son of the king. You're a child of God. Know who Christ is. Know who you are and know what you carry. The power was God's. But it would flow through Peter's hands. Look at the next verse. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. It's almost like they had to pull the miracle out of him. Did you notice that? They said, get up and walk, and he's still sitting there. Why? Because his body might not have been paralyzed, but his mind was still paralyzed with the past. His thinking needed to be transformed. And in salvation, God does something to our spirits. He does something to our souls. But our minds still need to be transformed. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This man was healed, but he was still living like he was paralyzed. How many Christians have been saved, but they're still living like they're unsaved? Because they don't realize what God has done in their lives. St. Peter Peter had literally, I think, to drag him to his feet. And God would say to some of us today, it's time to get up. I believe that. I, I believe some of us are stuck this morning. Stuck in the same place day after day. And God would say, it's time to get up. It's time to get back on your feet. It's time to stop feeling sorry for yourself. I know what happened to you was horrible. I know you were mistreated. I know you were hurt. But it is not the place I want you to stay. I do not want you to live a life existing in a lifelong pity party. But I want you to get up and become all that I have created you to be. It's time to get back on your feet. God wants to disrupt some of our routines. Some of you have been in the same place for too long. Let's finish up. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. They recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So he gets up and he does his strictly. He's, he's dancing. He's, he's busting the moves. He, he can't help himself. He, he can not only walk for the first time, he can run. He can dance. He's praising God. He's walking and leaping. And everybody recognizes him because they've walked past him every day. They know who he is. And now look at him. They've seen him. He's over 40 years old and he has never walked a day in his life. And look at him. He's like, he's breakdancing to electric boogaloo. He is doing the moves. He's doing the robot. That's in the message version. And uh, he looks the same, but he's clearly not the same. He looks the same, but he's not the same. When you encounter Jesus, you look the same, but you're not the same. To the people around you in your family, in your workplace, you walk in and you will not have a halo. You will not have a glow. You will not flow through the air. You look the same, but you're not the same because God has done something radical and different and supernatural inside you. 
you know, 28 years ago at Summer Madness, it was an ordinary Monday evening. And I had gone to Summer Madness as a 14-year-old teenager for two reasons. I'd heard the crack was good and the talent was good and when you're 14, or when you're single at any age, that's really all you need to hear. Let's be honest. There's some of you who are 46 will be there this year. Um, but that, I honestly, that was the only motivation I had was to have fun and to find a girl or two or three. And uh, I was 14, come on, give it a rest. And, uh, and I ran wild for three or four days. Oh, I ran wild. We pulled down every tent in the camp pretty much in the middle of the night. We ran wild. But then on the last night I went into an ordinary meeting. And they sang an ordinary worship song called I am persuaded I do believe that his salvation avails for me. For he who called you, he will not fail or leave you. He will keep you in his love. And in that moment as we sang that song, I encountered Jesus. And you know, when I went home from summer madness that summer, I looked the same. I looked like the same bratty 14-year-old who had went to summer madness five days before, but I was not the same. God had done something radical inside me, and my life has never been the same. Yes, I've had ups and downs. Yes, I've had times when I've been further away from God. But God did something inside me that was supernatural. And when God touches your life, you might look the same on the outside, but you know you're not the same. And I believe this morning that God wants to to touch some of us. I, I believe God wants to do something in us. I believe that God wants to to heal some people. I believe he wants to restore some people. The, the, the picture I just kept getting off while we were worshiping, I was asking the Lord what he wants to do this morning. And I just I kept getting the heart. I, I felt that God wants to touch people's hearts. And, and two ways, I, I felt like this morning, and we can't see our heart, but I felt this morning that God wanted to heal some hearts physically. I actually sensed there were some people in here who are either going through tests or have been diagnosed with heart conditions. And some of them are recently, and, and you're keeping it to yourself a bit. And some of you have, have heart issues, and I believe that God wants to touch and restore and heal physical hearts this morning. But I also felt that God wanted to restore and heal and mend and wound some broken hearts, some depressed hearts, some rejected hearts.